All right, so that brings us to Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is the first speech of Moses. It is the first four chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. It's going to start with the preamble, which is the first five verses, kind of laying out the context, and then Moses is going to go right into it. He's going to start giving us speeches. And what's interesting is Moses is going to be very praising of God and very harsh of them. And it's not a very good motivational speech. I think I mentioned this last week. This is, if your coach gave this to you at halftime, you'd be like, I'm quitting this team. Um, but these are the words of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh. So it is what it is because he is God. So he is basically going to talk about the great benefits that Yahweh has done for them. It's going to praise his character, what he's done for them. And obviously for most of you who've been here from the very beginning, and it is very clear that the first four books is a very rich history of Yahweh's incredible faithfulness and incredible patience that I just pray for every single day with my own kids. So he goes into that. Here Moses is going to point out Israel's unfaithfulness and emphasize how great Yahweh is. In the first section, which is the first three chapters, Moses begins a summary of Israel's history at Horeb, because this is where Yahweh had adopted Israel as his chosen nation under the Mosaic Covenant. So he doesn't go back to the beginning with Abraham. He goes back to Horeb, Mount Sinai, when they were first given the law. And that's where he's going to begin. Because that's when he officially adopted them as his children. That's where he officially made the covenant with them. And that's where he officially taught them what the covenant meant. And so that's where the history is going to begin. There are going to be two major focal points in these first three chapters. The first one is that the covenant tradition of promise from Abraham to Moses. There's going to be a huge repetition of God made promises to Abraham and he's been fulfilling them all the way up to Moses and through Moses. The other focal point is the experience of God in history working out the deed and the content of the promise. So it's going to be not only the promises of God, but it's how God is literally working out every little detail and fulfillment. And that's what he's going to focus on here. So that brings us to chapter 1, verse 1. This is what Moses said to the assembly of Israel and the Transjordan wastelands of the arid country opposite of Sup, or Suf, between Paran and Tafel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Diazaphon. So basically they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now it is ordinar ordinarily 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the way of Mount Seir. However, it was not until the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year that Moses addressed the Israelites just as Yahweh had instructed him to do. This took place after the defeat of King Sihon of the Amorites, whose capital was in Heshbon, and King of Og of Bashan, whose capital was in Asherah, specifically in Edri. So it was in the Transjordan and the Moab that Moses began to deliver these words. So right out of the gate, God doesn't hold back any punches. Normally it takes 11 days, but it took these people 38 years. Okay, so it's like, okay, wow, God, aren't you going to ease us into this? But that's the whole point. So here they are in the promised land. Verse 6, Yahweh our God spoke to us. Now remember Moses is speaking. So this isn't, usually when the prophets speak, they say, thus saith Yahweh. And then they talk as if they're Yahweh. And they say, 
I redeemed you. I delivered you. And it's so clear that Jeremiah is not the one doing that. But here Moses is speaking as the first person pronoun here and talking about God. Yahweh our God spoke to us at Mount Horeb and said, You have stayed in the area of this mountain long enough. Get up now, resume your journey, heading for the Amorite hill country to all of its areas, including the arid country, the highlands, the Cephaloth, the Negev, and the coastal plain of all of Canaan and Lebanon, as far as the great river that is the Euphrates River. Look, I have already given you the land to you. Go occupy the territory that I, the Yahweh, promised to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants. I also said to you at that time, I am no longer able to sustain you by myself. Moses basically begins with the introductory. We were all at Horeb. Everything was good. The tabernacle was built, so to speak. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's implied if you know your history. And God says, now it's time for you to go to the promised land. And Moses also says, and now at the same time, you guys were so numerous, I wasn't able to handle it all on my own. I needed help. So Yahweh your God has increased your population to the point that you are now as numerous as the very stars of the sky. Now remember I told you one of the focal points is the promises of Yahweh, or Abraham and the fact that God is fulfilling those. So he says, here you are, quoting from Deuteronomy Genesis 17. You actually did become as numerous as God specifically told Abraham he would become. That's why you were too much for me to handle. And that's interesting. He's like, he doesn't go like, you're just really big. You've been multiplying like rabbits or something in the water. I don't know what's going on. He says, this is too much for me to handle as one human because God has been so amazingly faithful to fulfill his promise by making you so numerous. I need help. Indeed, may Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, make you a thousand times more numerous than you are now, blessing you just as he would, said he would. But how can I alone bear up under the burden of your hardship and strife? Now there's a little another stab. <laughs> okay, it's not just because you're really numerous. It's also because you're a pain in the butt. And I, I can't, how am I able to deal, this, deal with this on my own? Select wise and practical men, those who known among your tribes, whom I may appoint at your lead, as your leaders. You replied to me that what I had said to you was good. So I chose as your tribal leaders, wise and well-known men, placing them over you as administrators of groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and also other tribal officials. I furthermore admonished your judges at that time that they should pay attention to the issues among your fellow citizens and judge fairly, whether between one citizen and another or a citizen and a resident of foreign land. So he makes it very clear that this was about fairness. This was about executing the law of Yahweh, which is all about justice. Every single one of these people were about justice. And it didn't matter whether it was among two Israelites or an Israelite or a foreigner. Everybody who was a part of this community was to be treated just as justly and just as fairly as anybody else. They must not discriminate in judgment, but hear the lowly and the great alike. Nor should they be intimidated by human beings, for the judgment belongs to Yahweh. If, matter, um, if the matter being adjudicated is too difficult for them, then they should bring it before me and the hearing of all. Basically, he emphasizes the point that this was about creating a different kind of people. Now, this is important because he says you've become very numerous, but your numerousness includes both Israelites and foreigners. 
And normally, a group like that, the foreigners have no rights. But from the very beginning, Moses is emphasizing the fact that everyone has the same rights under this covenant. Everyone has the same rights under this covenant. You're to treat everyone fairly, whether they're foreign or not. Now, that's a hint. Later, when we get into the second speech, he's going to really emphasize how are we to treat the foreigner and how important that is. So he's kind of setting it up from the very beginning that this is very important. This history is covered in Numbers 10 through 12. So in Numbers 10 through 12, that's where we see what he just talked about. The rest of Deuteronomy chapter 1, the events that he's going to go through are covered in Numbers 13 through 14. So he's going to now summarize the events of Numbers 13 through 14. And that is bringing them to the promised land and they say we can't take it and then the judgment. And so that's what he's going to talk about now. So he says in verse 18, So I instructed you at that time regarding everything that you should do. Then we left Horeb and passed through all the immense immense and forbidding desert wilderness that you saw on the way to the Amorite hill country as Yahweh our God had commanded us to do, finally arriving at Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, You have come to the Amorite hill country which Yahweh our God is about to give us. So he emphasizes, look, God brought us through great barren wilderness. That in itself, the fact that you all survived it, is a great provision of Yahweh. How many wildernesses did he bring you through over and over again so successfully? That is God's provision to take care of you. And now you're at the land, just like he promised. Look, he said, he has, look, he has placed this land in front of you. Go up and take possession of it, just as Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, said to do. Do not be afraid or discouraged. The word here, take possession of it, it comes from the Hebrew word yasar. And yasar not only means to take possession, but it also means to depossess. So the idea is that by taking possession, they're going to depossess the people that already live there. And that's the implication there is a kicking out as well as an entering into, which presents challenges. So God clearly instructed them, go, take it, it is yours. And do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Now that phrase, some of your Bible translations say, be strong and courageous. And that's kind of a very famous passage that God is going to say to Joshua. A lot of people have that as a memory verse and that kind of stuff. But it is. It's the idea of do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Why? Because God told you to take this land. So all of you approached me and said, let us send some of the men ahead of us to scout out the land and bring us back word as to how we should attack it and what cities are like, what cities are like there. Now remember Numbers, it says that God said, send 12 spies in the land. Here Moses is telling us, that you guys asked for it. So I thought this was a good idea. And that's what he says. So now we see that it's actually they, and God allowed them to have it because of their lack of faith. And so the request was actually their initiation. So already we're getting into their lack of doubt. Look, God has been faithful to bring you through wilderness. He's made you numerous. He brought you to the promised land. He says it's all yours. And you responded, well, we want to see what it looks like for us. I thought this was a good idea, so I sent 12 men from among you, one from each tribe, and they left and went up to the hill country coming to the Eshkola Valley, which they scouted out. Then they took 
some of the produce of the land, carried it back down to us, and they also brought a report to us saying, the land that Yahweh our God has given us is good. So once again, here is proof. You doubted whether the land was good. You brought back proof. You brought back evidence of the goodness of God and his promises. And so he's making it very clear that God is living up to all of what he said that he would do. However, you were not willing to go up, but instead you rebelled against Yahweh our God. You complained among yourselves privately and said, because Yahweh hates us, he brought us up from Egypt to deliver us over to the Amorites so they could destroy us. What is going to happen to us? Our brothers have drained away our courage by describing people who are more numerous and taller than we are and great cities whose defenses appear to be high as heaven itself. Moreover, they said they saw Anakites there, so I responded to you. Do not be terrified of them. Yahweh your God is about to go ahead of you, and he will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt and in the desert where you saw him carrying you along like a man carries his son. This is... This he did everywhere you went until you came to this very place. However, through this, you did not have confidence in Yahweh your God. And the one who was constantly going before you to find places for you to set up camp, he appeared by fire at night and cloud by day to show you the way that you ought to go. Now, notice how many times he keeps mentioning God's faithfulness. How many times he says that. God brought you the land, but you didn't listen. You didn't listen. You started believing the word of your fellow humans who have broken many promises throughout your life. We know that because we're humans. Yet God has honored every single promise he's ever made to you. Yet you chose the wisdom in the scare tactics of media and CNN and fake news and Fox and all that kind of stuff over the word of God and the promises of God. But I reminded you do not be terrified of them. Remember, and there's where you get this thing. Not only is all this remembrance already, but he said, remember all the ways that God is already taking care of you in the wilderness. And he doesn't mention everything specifically, but the implication is the defeat of the Amalekites, the provision of the water, the provision of the bread, the defeat of Og, the defeat of Sihon. Like, remember all these things of how God is taking care of you. And he will fight for you just as he saw him do in Egypt. That's the big one. Okay, remember for them, Egypt is the cross. That is where God defeated the greatest enemy in the entire world and delivered them and saved them. So the equivalent for us would be to say, remember everything that you've heard in the church. So many people's testimonies of how great God has been in their life. Your own things that where God has provided for you financially when you didn't think it was possible. Healing or the ability to just get through the day in a way that you didn't think you could get through. Remember all this stuff. And most importantly, remember the cross. Remember the faithfulness of Christ on the cross where he defeated death on your behalf just like he promised. Remember, remember, remember. And this same God is going to go ahead of you. Now, notice the language here, where we saw him carrying you along like a man carries a son. The other thing that's different with a suzerain vassal treaty from the ancient world is there's really no intimate language. It is king and servant. But here he says, 
a father carrying a son. The father-sonship language is very strong throughout Deuteronomy. And the idea that this, our pastor actually just mentioned this last Sunday, but this is the idea of the Abba Father thing, okay? The Abba Father is that this is unheard of in the ancient world. You have to realize that like the Middle Eastern fathers and the Roman fathers at the second time, they didn't like kids. And it's not that they just didn't like kids because that was a cultural thing. It was because they were taught to not like kids. Kids were not worth having around until they became an adult. In the, the beginning, they were just in the way. And, and it wasn't until they got 12 or 13 years old that they were actually started to be treated like a decent human being. I mean, even that, when, G, when, the, when the, all the kids come to Jesus and they're like, get these kids out of here. Like, seriously, they don't belong here. And Jesus is like, no. That's wrong. And so this is powerful language that God is using. They, they, because that was so part of their culture, both in this world and in the world to come in the Second Testament, they, they don't think of God like that in a lot of ways. And yet Moses now pushes them deep into that father-sonship language, caring. The idea is no one's ever thought of their God this way. Nobody's ever thought of their God in a father-son kind of relationship. So he carried you along. This he did everywhere you went. He carried you the entire time. The entire time. However, through all this, you did not have confidence in Yahweh your God, the one who is constantly going before you. And once again, even when he points out the fact that they were not faithful, he goes right back into the one, the one that was faithful. And so faithful that he went ahead of you to find the right places to take you in advance. Not only was he walking with you and carrying you, but at the same time he's out way ahead of you in the future in geography, finding the right places to bring you to. Because he's an omnipresent God. And he's the God who appeared before you in fire and smoke. No other God has ever done that. And so he's trying to make them remember your God has been unlike any other God you've ever encountered. Most of the gods are completely oblivious and too busy to ever think about their people. The only time they ever think about their people is when they get hungry and they need to be fed. The reality is, is that this God is unlike that. He carries you. He appears before you. He goes ahead of you and blazes the trail, finds all the right places, and he takes care of you. No other God has ever done that. And even to this day, Allah does not care about you. In the Islamic religion, Allah is oblivious to your concerns and care. He's so impersonal that they don't even pray to him. When they do pray, it's just like, Allah guide me, Allah bless me, but not like pouring your heart out. Help me. Give me the words to speak. I can't get through this day. Be the father that I need to be. They don't have that kind of relationship. The Hindu gods are completely disconnected. Atheism, you're on your own. You're a mistake. Okay? All the religions even today that drive our culture, they're totally disinterested. They're disinterested. Or they're incapable of actually having a relationship with you. And so you have to realize that Yahweh is unique then and now and in the future in a way that nobody has ever experienced before. And you need to remember that. You need to remember that. Verse 34. 
When Yahweh heard you, he became angry. Now, once again, I know like for a lot of people you feel like, okay, this is review, this is review. This is like watching the previously last week on the show. And you're like, I just watched that like a couple seconds ago on my Netflix binging. I don't need to watch the previously. Okay, and you're a little annoyed with that because you just want to get to the show. And hopefully you're not feeling that. But I can not only understand in a human kind of way, like, okay, we just sat through the book of Numbers, like, the last couple of weeks. <laughs> we were, this is all fresh. But remember, one, repetition is the key of learning. And no matter how recently you just did it, there's probably still a lot of things that you just forgot. Two, it is nice to have things in summary packages. Okay, this is the forest. We've been doing the trees. This is the forest now. And what really makes the force powerful is when you get event after event after event after event, it becomes even clear, wow, God has really been faithful. Okay, when you read like in one week a horrible rebellion and God's faithfulness, and then you got to wait for another Monday to come along, and then you get another rebellion and God's faithfulness, and you do that over several months, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember God was faithful. But it if you sit down in like a 30-minute period and read faithfulness, 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 faithfulness over and over and over again, that's a much more powerful thing than we just went through the whole book of Numbers a month ago. Yeah, does that make sense? And so hopefully um, this is beneficial because the reality is you see over and over again he's been faithful. And here's where it really stands out. Yeah, we know that God has every right to be angry, but when you just read all this in the last like 10 minutes, then you're like, wow, yeah, he definitely has the right to be angry. Look at all this stuff that he did for them. And now it's all compounded and concentrated in one, a couple paragraphs. Wow, he has the right to be angry. I get angry at my children for smaller things than this kind of stuff. And so he was angry. Not a single person of this evil generation will see the good land that I promised to give you to your ancestors. The exception is Caleb, son of Jephnu, and he will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the territory on which he was, has walked, because he has wholeheartedly followed me. So he has wholeheartedly followed me. This phrase is the idea of his entire being. In fact, in the Hebrew, it carries the idea of like all of his life all of his being. And so the idea is that there was all of him committed to me. That's why I'm going to give him everything that I promise. And this is a huge contrast because unlike them where they have nothing that's committed to Yahweh, here's an example. And this is what Moses is going to say later. He's going to say, look, what I've set before you is not impossible. Okay, it's not impossible. You, you, can, you can understand this. This is possible to do. And Caleb becomes an example of that. I mean, yes, is it impossible to truly meet the law and the full requirements of the law in total perfection? Yes. But is it impossible to just at least be obedient to the law? And even when you do mess up, you repent quickly and that kind of stuff. Can you live a pretty decent Christian life out or a Jewish life? Yeah, that's possible. And that's what he's giving an example here is, look, this isn't impossible. Caleb did it. Caleb did it. He's an example from your own generation that was able to pull it off and did it, and I rewarded him for that. As for me, Yahweh was also angry with me on your account. He said, you also will not be able to go in there. Now, I, this one's interesting. 
Because when you read Numbers, it's like all Moses. He's truly screwing up. But Moses is like, because of you. <laughs> I lost my temper and I got angry because of you. Now, the only thing I can think of is in the context, he's saying that God is angry. And he says, and not just Yahweh, I was too. And the implication is Moses is kind of seeing that he doesn't feel guilty about being angry. Probably where most of the blame he puts on is the fact that he disobeyed in his anger. And so he says, on the account of you, I got angry and I lost the promised land. However, verse 38, Joshua, son of Nun, your assistant will go. And remember, this is him quoting Yahweh. Encourage him because he will be he will enable Israel to inherit the land. Also your infants who you thought would die on the way and your children who as yet not to, um, who yet did not, do not know good from bad will go in there. I will give them the land and they will possess it. But as for you, turn back and head for the desert by the way of the Red Sea. So God makes it very clear here that he is going to take care of them. These people the younger generation, and Caleb, and Joshua. But notice he also makes the point that the irony, which we mentioned numbers, is they were so much using the excuse that God was going to allow their children to die in the wilderness and to die in the promised land, and that was their excuse. We're taking care of our children. We're being good parents. We're looking out for them. We want to make sure that they're safe. You're not protecting them. And God comes right back and says... They're the very ones I'm going to take care of now. They're the very ones I'm going to bring in the promised land. It's going to be you that's not doing that. Now, notice the contrast in another way, too, is that in one way he says, he, Yahweh, was like a father who carried you through the wilderness. You, you failed to teach your children. You failed to live an obedient life before them as an example. And you used them as an excuse to disobey God. You didn't carry them. You did not live it out, and you used them as an excuse to not follow God. That is a contrast here. But unlike you, I'm going to not carry you anymore, but I'm going to carry your children. And I'm going to carry them into the promised land, and I'm going to be the father that they need because you're not the father and the mother that they ha should have. And that's the implication. I'm going to let you all die, and then I'm going to adopt them as my own like I adopted you, and I'm going to become their father, and I'm going to carry them, the very people that you failed to be a parent to and the very people that you failed to teach as an example and to carry. And there's a huge contrast here between those two events. Now notice, and what we've read so far no matter how much Israel disobeyed, even when their leader Moses failed, Yahweh was still faithful to them. And even though he might reject that generation and rejected that leader, he had every right to completely kick them all to the curb and walk away. Yet, he is faithful to the next generation and he's faithful to appoint a new leader and Joshua. And that's a huge emphasis here. Their concern for their children was understandable. Their fear was understandable. 
but it was not theologically valid, and it was not theologically reasonable. But God is not condemning them for fear. He's not condemning them for their concern for their children. He's condemning them for the fact that they allowed their fear to override what they knew about their God. And then they use their, ex- their children as an excuse. Then they use their children as an excuse. Notice at the end of 40, God is saying, go back to Egypt. I'm done with you. Go back to Egypt. And we read about that. That's where God says, I'm no longer going with this people anymore. They violated the covenant, and I have every right to walk away from the covenant because that's what the covenant's all about. In verse 41, Then you responded to me and admitted we have sinned against Yahweh. We will now go up and fight as Yahweh our God has told us to do. So you each put on your battle gear and prepared to go up to the hill country. But Yahweh told me, Tell them this, Do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. And you will be defeated by your enemies. I spoke to you, but you did not listen. Instead, you rebelled against Yahweh and recklessly went up to the hill country. The Amorites, the inhabitants of the area, confronted you and you and chased you like a swarm of bees, striking you down from Seir as far as Hormah. Then you came back and you wept before Yahweh, but he paid no attention to you whatsoever. Therefore, you remained at Kadesh for a long time, indeed for the full time meaning the rest of your life, literally. The main point that this is trying to teach is there's a fine balance in the nature of the covenant that they constantly fail to grasp. And one moment they're disobeying God and say, we're not going to take the land, we're not going there. And the very next moment they're like, we're going to take the land, we're going to take the land, we can do it. And what they forgot was God told them to take the land and they wouldn't do it. And then God says, you can't take the land and then they want to do it. Like, it's opposite day with them all the time. And the fine balance is, first, they could not really trust Yahweh that he would really truly fight for them and protect them. And this is key. Do you really trust Yahweh that he'll provide for you financially? Do you really trust Yahweh that even though he is not like a magic wand that will heal every physical ailment that you have, but do you trust him that he'll take care of you and the physical ailments and struggles that you have? Do you really trust Yahweh that he's got this country in his hands? He doesn't promise that everything's going to be happy-go-lucky in this country, but he does promise you that he's gone before you and he will carry you through whatever happens to this country economically, politically, in any kind of a way. Persecution. The question is, do you really trust Yahweh when he says, You're my child, and I will take care of you. And I think a lot of us would say, yes, in theology, and we would amen it all day in church and truly believe it. But a lot of times in practice, there's a lot of other things I try first sometimes. And hopefully some areas have gotten better than other areas, and I'm not saying that we fail miserably all the time in every area. But we know where there's things in our life that we just have not learned over the years and other things that we've improved in. The second thing is when they rose to weak confidence, they forgot the seriousness of their disobedience. See, when they were told that you weren't truly trusting God 
and then they had to face the consequences of what they were doing, then they mustered up this confidence out of their own strength. And they failed to recognize how serious their sin really was. Because here's the balance is like, you need to trust God when he says, I will take care of you. But we know we will not do that perfectly all the time. But when you fail miserably, the appropriate response is not, okay, I'll, I'll do it now. I'll, I'll try harder. That's a lot of what we do. It's like, oh God, I'm so sorry for messing up. I'm going to totally try harder next time. This time I'll get it right. You fail to recognize the seriousness of your real true lack of trust and what you truly have done in disobeying him and not trusting him. You fail to grasp how powerful the world really truly is that you cannot face. And this is such a repetitious story of the Christian faith in America. I can't speak for other countries. I know it's probably human nature, but, but even in our own lives, is in one moment we're doubting God and not trusting him, and we're going to other things to solve it, and we try everything, and then we realize, oh yeah, we should probably pray. And then we're reaping the consequences of all of our efforts that have failed, and then we like get in the prayer, but in the prayer, we do the exact same thing that we just did. We tell God that, like, okay, I'm going to try harder this time, and I'm going to do it this time, and I'm going to please you this time, but we're still doing it in our own effort and our own tenacity, and we still have not fully comprehended how horribly powerful the world is and how daunting it is. In one moment, we're scared to death of the world and we don't trust God. And the next moment, we're trying to rear up all the courage we can to face the world, to please God this time in our trust. And yet, in all of it, you haven't trust either way. Does that make sense? And that's the difficult tension of the covenant. The covenant is to realize that the world is a scary place. You cannot stand against the world unless you're truly trusting in God. And so if you do fail to trust God, the appropriate response is not, I'll try better next time, and I'm going to really give it my go. The appropriate response is to fall on your knees and say, you have to do this. I can't. And you've got to even rob me of my own desire to take things into my own hands. And too often our prayer is, I'll try harder, I'll do better, or God, please help me. And not enough of, I literally can't do this. I literally don't have the strength to deal with my family today. I literally have the desire to go into this addiction again. You've got to literally violate my free will and my free choice and make me do it. And I'm giving you permission to take over and do it. That's the true submissive prayer to the Holy Spirit. Not that I'll try harder, help me God or whatever. It's the, I don't want to, or I do want to do this, Therefore, violate my will. <laughs> Take over and do it, and I give you permission to do that. Because it's not me, but he who lives in me who does it. And that's what they failed to grasp. That's what they failed to grasp. All they saw was behavior. We didn't behave appropriately, so we're so sorry. Now we're going to behave appropriately. But they didn't get that the world is a nasty place. And the only thing is really, truly total submission and total trust in God. 
And that's what they never, ever learn because this was behaviorism to them. Does that make sense?